So I have it on some good authority that the kids may not have been formally dismissed. So if there's any kids who are still in here who want to go to the children's church, uh, you can go at this time. And uh, yeah, it's all good. I uh, hope you're excited, kids. I hope you're excited, church, as well, as we get to dig into the Word of God once again this morning. Uh, and I, I, hope, I hope you've been appreciating uh, and getting lots out of this series we're doing on life's big questions. And this morning, we're going to be answering another, not just one question, but technically three, even though I only put two on the bulletin. And the questions we're going to look at this morning are, where do we come from? What has gone wrong? And how do we fix it? And once again, these answers, as we look at them, you'll realize these answers have become another battleground over truth. Uh, you know, even as I was looking through, you know, the pages of Genesis this week, preparing for the sermon, you just you realize how no part of this truth has not sort of come under attack from somewhere. You know, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created, but then the world says, no, no, wait, wait, you know, the Big Bang did it. You know, we're told God created the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they're like, nope, that, that was just natural forces of nature. God created the land. No, that was geology. God created the seas. No, that was hydrology. God created the animals. Nope, that was evolution. You know, told God created man. No, that was just, you know, fancy hominids developing culture in society. And even this very idea that God created the male and female uh, has been something that is now rejected by people whose just gender is something better seen on a spectrum. And with so much truth sort of at stake uh, here, Again, it matters how we answer these questions. And just because we're going to be looking at so many different topics uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be you know, in all kinds of different passages as well. But I think the passage for me that really pulls everything together this morning is found in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 4 to 9. So if you'd like to pull, uh, open it there, you can follow along with me as I read Ephesians 2, Verses 4 and 9. And these, for many of us, will be some familiar words. Because beginning in verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Let's pray. Father God, um, yeah, Lord, as we've been looking at this question, uh, well, this series on questions, Lord, I pray that Lord, in this moment, you would help us not just to use our minds, but Lord, you'd focus our minds on the truth that we are going to hear this morning. Um, truth that answers those deep questions within us. That, that, and those answers, they give us purpose. They give us meaning in this life. And Lord, those, those questions not just point us to you, but Lord, they draw us towards you as our Lord and Savior. And Lord, just, yeah, give us quietness in this moment. Lord, we invite you to come and be with us in our midst, that, Lord, you would be our teacher, that you would be our guide, that, Lord, you would be our truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So when we look at the world around us and we ask the question, which we're going to look at this, this morning, what has gone wrong with this world and how do we fix it? Uh, we actually begin answering that question with a larger story, you know, part, part of the bigger narrative. And it, this, the answer really comes as a story of redemption. It's the story of God's salvation itself. But we're actually going to go back to the very beginning of that, uh, right to the start, by asking the question first, where do we come from? Because this is a very important part, a piece to this answer. And the answer to that question of where do we come from is located in the very first book of the Bible, in the very first chapter of the Bible, in the very first verse in the Bible. Genesis 1.1 says, So simply, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you know, that, that verse actually it tells us a few very important things that we need to know about this world. Uh, the very first thing it tells us is that God is their creator. Uh, when we talk about creation, uh, the process of God creating, theologically we always want to say, remind us that this is the work of the entire Trinity, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all equally part of this work of creation. But that means that God is also unique. Uh, he's not part of his creation. He's set apart. Because God alone is eternal. God alone existed before anything else existed. God alone is the creator. God alone is God. And everything else other than God is creation. Even things unseen, things in the heavenly realms, all of that is the work of God in creation. Because God created everything that is out of nothing. Uh, theologically, we like to use a fancy Latin phrase, ex nihilo, um, to say just that. God created everything from nothing. It means out of nothing. So God, again, it's important because God didn't just take some pre-existing stuff. You know, God didn't have stuff lying around the house and say, I'm going to shape this into something. No, he didn't take something and shape it into something else. God spoke all of creation into existence. There was nothing God spoke and there was something. And that also means that God is also the source of all things. The source of all power. Source of all knowledge. The source of all truth. And the source of all life. God is the source of all things. And that also means, I feel like I'm using that phrase a lot, but it also means that God is not just creator, but he's also the sustainer of his creation. Uh, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the power of his word. You see, God didn't just make creation and then just take his hands off the steering wheel to see what happens. God is involved in, in upholding his creation. Even in this moment, he is caring for his creation. He loves his creation, and he's nurturing it, and he's guiding it, and he's involved in it. Uh, that great verse by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 26. Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father he feeds them. God's involved in his creation. And yet, even though God is involved in his creation... Here's something else we need to know. That doesn't mean God is bound by his creation. 
God is not bound in any way by space or time or any of this stuff that we see around us. God can enter into his creation. He can interact with creation, but he's in no way a slave to it. The, the freedom of God is not limited by his own creation. The only limits to God are his own character and his own nature. But other than that, there's nothing that God can't do. In fact, Luke 1, 37 says, for nothing will be impossible with God. That's what that verse tells us about the nature of, of God as creator. And yet, I know there's going to be, and you speak on this topic, you know it's going to happen. There's going to be people who hear that and think, well, that's just the Bible fairy tale. Because that's not what science tells us about creation. Because there's, you know, in their worldview, they offer alternative answers to the question of where do we come from? And those answers don't include God in any way. And I don't want to make this like a science versus faith thing. I think those two can go together. I believe science is an amazing tool uh, that actually shows us truth, reveals the things about God because they're true in this world. And I say, also say that I know people who, you know, I would consider friends and fellow believers who try to find a compromise here. So they believe in an old earth or an intelligent design or evolution or, or a universe billions of years old. And they, but, but they see those things as part of what God used to create his creation. So I don't want to create division here. But personally, I agree with Del Tackett, who many of you know from the Truth Project, who says about creation, he says this, he says that the very nature and character of God is consistent with reading Genesis as a historical narrative. And that means, I agree with him. I, I think that God created things just the way that he said. And I think that that is actually the most logical assumption that we can come to when we're confronted with the evidence. Um, I'm going to step sort of sideways a little bit. I don't do this very often, but some of you may know I was originally went to university with a science degree. I got a Bachelor of Science in uh, minored in genetics and minor in physical sciences. So science has kind of always been a little bit of an interest or hobby of mine. So let me tell you just, I guess, a few things. These haven't been peer-reviewed, so don't send me letters. If you want to talk about it, we can. But these are just a few of my personal observations and feelings about science when it comes to answering this question, where do we come from? Because for a scientific explanation of where do we come from, it requires several things. Uh, first thing you may need is uh, you are required to believe in something called dark matter. Uh, and dark matter is matter that you can't see and you can't touch it. And it's never been measured and it's never been observed in any way. And yet science tells us that dark matter makes up 85% of all the matter in the universe. This thing that we can't see or touch or, or know that it's real. And the reason they believe dark matter exists is because their models for the expansion of the universe actually don't make sense if it's not there. Uh, the universe, it needs more gravity. Uh, the universe would, it would be too far apart if there wasn't something holding it together. So it's got to be this dark matter that we don't know what it is. And speaking of it, the expansion of the universe, you also, if you want to follow science, you have to believe that after the Big Bang, the universe had this very brief moment when it actually expanded faster than the speed of light. And you may think, well, what's the big deal about that? But that actually breaks a scientific constant, a natural law. It's the reason that people, science don't believe in miracles in the Bible. They say, you can't do that. That can't happen. You're breaking the natural order. But so again, that's what happened in the Big Bang, and we have a name for that. It's called something supernatural. Uh, 
happened at the Big Bang. And if you want to follow science, you probably also have to believe in something like along the idea of a multiverse, where there is somewhere out there an invisible, unseen realm that exists alongside ours that we can't interact with. But it has to be there, again, because it's the best and really the only explanation that science has for a first cause of the universe. If there was nothing, what happened to make something? Well, maybe something outside of ourselves, this, this external multiverse realm, that something outside of our universe had to act to, 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 to set everything in motion. And with that, you're also going to need something called, well, along the lights of a Higgs boson, subatomic particle. Uh, sometimes they called it the God particle. That's because, you know, we used to believe that, they used to say the Big Bang was everything was crunched together and then it blew apart. Well, they don't believe that anymore. Now they believe that there was nothing and then there was something. Um, sounds familiar. But, uh, but you need this, this particle to create something out of nothing, that this little molecule, will do, particle will do that for you. And then again, if you want to follow science, you also need to believe that life originates from non-life. Uh, which, again, has never been observed. And yet, if you think logically, that's the only explanation available to them, as improbable as that is. In fact, uh, just this last week, the scientific community, they were very excited about this probe that returned from getting dirt from an asteroid in our solar system. It was like a four billion mile round trip. And the, the probe landed and it has this dirt. And the scientists, they were giddy with excitement about this space dirt that it might have some organic compounds or some of the building blocks of life. And they were excited because, I guess a dirty little secret in this area is that scientists are excited about that because they know that it's essentially, basically impossible for life to have originated here on Earth, on our planet. I mean, forget the cosmic soup or the primordial ooze they used to teach back when I was a kid. They don't believe that in anymore. Now, most scientists would probably believe, if you push them, that life originally came to our planet from somewhere else. It's just the simplest explanation. They can't explain how it got there, but if, they, if it comes from there, they don't have to explain it here. And that's the good news for them. So again, just a couple of things, but listen to that list. Science believes in something they cannot see or touch or prove, but is needed for them to make sense of the world. They believe in something that's supernatural. They believe in something that is beyond our reality, was the creation or the beginning of creation. Science believe that everything was created from nothing. And science believes that, uh, that life originated from somewhere other than here. Um, you, you read that list. And to me, it just makes more sense to believe the, in God. Because again, first three chapters, he answers all of those questions. And even as the psalmist says, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day, he pours out speech and night and night, at night to night, they reveal knowledge. There's no speech or nor words where whose, in whose voice it is not heard. And Paul says in Romans 1, beginning verse 19, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The existence of God should be plain to us through his creation. 
When we look at creation, we should know that it requires a creator. And creation actually speaks to us about the creator. It tells us about his nature. You know, when I look at creation, you know, I can see that God is powerful. I can see that he's beautiful. I can see that he's playful and loving and tender and even orderly. But the key here is you actually have to be looking. I actually read this week a statistic that shocked me. It came from the UK, United Kingdom, and it said, on average, prisoners locked up in jail spend more time outside than on a daily basis than the children. That's a true thing. You see, a big part of our problem here is that we have so closed ourselves off from creation, living inside of these walls, that we begin to be blind to the Creator. So simple application here. Spend some time outside. Just as the kids say, touch grass. Get out there. Because you know what? If you're looking at the majesty of a mountain, it is so easy to believe in an almighty creator. But if you are stuck in a room watching Real Housewives of Beverly Hills for 12 hours a day, I can understand why you question if there's a God. It's just... And yes, belief takes faith. But faith is how we understand creation. Hebrews 11.3, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So God is the creator of all things. And that leads us to the next lesson on creation because the next lesson is that we, humanity, is the pinnacle of God's uh, creation. Uh, the, the second part of this answer of where do we come from comes from Genesis chapter 1, beginning of verse 26, where it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. As humanity, we are a part of God's creation. But even as part of God's creation, we're told we're, we're something special, even then within it. Because not only were we God's final act of creation, we're told that we bear the image of God. And no other part of creation can make that claim. And you know, there's always some debate theologically about what the image of God refers to, but personally, I think that means there's just there's things within our humanity that are a reflection of the nature of God. That as people, we are relational. That we are moral. That we are creative and we also want to create things. That we have a will. That we have an intellect. We have a personality. That we love other people and there's things that we love. And that means that every person ever born is a work of the master himself. Every life matters and has value and worth beyond our imagining because we bear the image of God. I thought of this little illustration this week and that simply that if I were to draw a picture for you just on a piece of paper or a napkin here at the church, whatever, uh, if you took that napkin and used it to wipe up your coffee and you threw it in the garbage when you were done with it, you would think nothing of it. But if you had a napkin with something that was drawn on it by Picasso or Michelangelo or Van Gogh, suddenly that little worthless napkin becomes a thing of great value. Something that you would treasure. 
And it's because it was made by the master's hand. And you, every one of you, is the work of the master's hand. I love the words of Bill Heibel on this topic when he says, you will never lock eyes with someone who doesn't matter to God. Every time you make eye contact with a cab driver, a waiter, a waitress, a bellhop, a doorman, millionaire jet setter, a Gen Xer, a grandparent in a rest home, a minority person, a gay or lesbian or illegal immigrant, a convicted criminal, a politician who votes the opposite way that you vote, every single person you lock eyes with matters to God. You will never talk on the phone with a person who isn't the reason that Jesus came to die. You'll never pass a person on the street that wouldn't warrant an all-out search and that the Father wants, doesn't want back home. They are one prayer away from receiving Jesus Christ's salvation, just as you have. They deserve my respect. They deserve my honor. They deserve my love. Because every person is a work of God. And when he had finished creating Adam and Eve, us, when God was finished his creation, he pronounced it not just good, he pronounced it very good. Genesis 1.31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. But that leads us to the next question we're going to ask this morning. Then what has gone wrong with this world? Because we know very good is not a description of the world we live in today. Our world is actually kind of a mess. Because somewhere along the line, something changed. And what changed was a little something called sin. And this is how it happened. It's a bit of a long passage, but stick with me. Genesis 3, beginning of verse 1, says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the tree of the, uh, the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was uh, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. You see, when the serpent entered into the garden and deceived Eve and led Adam and Eve to eat, uh, it led us to this situation we find ourselves in today, the situation of sin. And sin is, is a moral failure. In fact, that's what the word sin originally meant. It just meant to fail. If you tried to do something and you didn't do, they said, you sinned. You didn't, you, you, you failed. You missed. You fell short. Even as we hear in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's true because sin is not just an act we commit. It's, it's also the condition that we are now all born into. Uh, sin lives in us. And that may be worse news than than. than, than most people realize. Because the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 for the wages of sin and death in Ephesians 2.1 As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and in your sins. You see, in sin, we're told not that we're weak, not that we're flawed, not that we're diseased, not that we're disabled, 
or anything else. In sin, we are told we are dead. And I don't think that's a spoiler alert to tell you being dead is not a good situation to be in. Because you see, it'd be one thing if we could learn to live with sin, but live is the one thing that sin won't let us do. Because sin, when it's present, sin begins to destroy all of that very good that God declared in his creation. And sin is why our bodies waste away. Sin is why we're often at odds with our fellow man. Sin is why we're separated from God. The Bible tells us sin easily entangles us. Sin destroys us. It binds us. It captures us. Sin blinds us. Sin compels us to, to please ourselves instead of God. Sin confuses us about what is right and what is wrong, and it makes us think that actually selfishness is actually a good thing, that selfishness is now success. And I've told you this before, but as a pastor, I have seen the pain that sin can cause. I've seen marriages end. I've seen children hurt. I've seen careers sunk, friendships unraveled, friend families destroyed. I've seen lives devastated. I've seen people lose everything they care about, all because somewhere along the line, someone thought, what's the big deal about a little sin? But sin is not a shortcut to happiness. It's not a path to getting ahead. Sin is not a means to fulfillment. It's not self-actualization. It won't fill that empty place in your soul. Sin will promise you the world but it will cost you everything and it will leave you nothing but regret and consequences. Because sin infects and affects every part of our lives. Nothing's unaffected. Our minds, our emotions, our wills, our intellects, our moral reasoning, our decision-making, our words, our deeds, our relationships, our society, our everything is touched by sin. And because of sin, death is where we're heading. And it's not just physical death, but a spiritual death as well. A death that means eternal separation from God in hell. And even more than that, we're told sin even affects creation itself as it suffers under the curse of sin. Romans 8, beginning verse 20. Paul says, For creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Sin has affected every part of creation. It's the problem of what went wrong. And that's bad news. If you want some even worse news, you need to know there's nothing we can do about that. There's nothing we can do about sin. There's no amount of work we can do. There's no deed so noble, no mighty effort so wonderful, no life that has lived so magnificently that we could actually make up the distance that we've fallen short because of sin. You see, when Adam sinned in the garden, that separation that was caused and created by sin became a gulf that is too large to traverse in this or any lifetime. In sin, we are powerless, lifeless, hopeless, and completely helpless to do anything for ourselves, to save ourselves. So you know what? When we ask the question, what's wrong with this world and how do we fix it? The answer is we can't. I don't want to let that just sink in for a moment because that's a very desperate place to be. 
But it's also asking the wrong question. Because the question we should be asking is not how can we fix it, but how can God fix it? And the answer to that question comes to us in many places in the Bible, but my favorite was the one I read earlier, Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The good news is that while there was nothing that we could do to save ourselves from sin. That what we were powerless to do for ourselves, God did for us in Christ. We were helpless, but God came to save us. We were lost, but God came to find us. We were dead in our sins and our trespasses, but God came to give us life. Where we fell short, God made up the difference. And he didn't do it as an act of magic. He didn't just utter some religious abracadabra and poof, sin was gone. You see, God does not just excuse our sin. He doesn't just look the other way from sin. He doesn't just sweep sin under the carpet. No, God fixed it in the only way that he could by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross in our place. And you know, you can't rush past this part. You can't just go on to other matters of the face until you actually have that sorted out in your head. You know, there's no passing go, no collecting $200 until you come to a complete understanding of this very truth. That it was Jesus who died paying the penalty for our sin. And he's the only one who could have done it. Now Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And here his words clearly are, because Jesus doesn't say, I'm one of many ways that you're going to be able to help yourself. He doesn't say, I'll tell you which direction to head. He doesn't say, you know, when I get there, I'll send you a map so you can follow me. No, Jesus said, I am the way. Jesus is the one and only way to be saved. Jesus is the only solution that we have for the problem of sin. Because again, Jesus would pay the penalty for our sin. He would stand in as our substitute, taking the wrath of God that we deserved while he was hanging on the cross. The Savior, the Messiah, would lay down his life so that others could find life. Because what the justice of God required, the love of God supplied through Jesus on the cross. And again, that was the only way it could happen. Jesus alone was born without sin. Jesus alone was the worthy and perfect sacrifice. Jesus was the Son of God, and Jesus died to fix the problem of sin. Jesus says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And you know, that's not just something that should be in our heads theoretical. You know, 
this is not just some paper transaction that God goes on, does in heaven, and says, like, like you know, raises that and you're good to go, but, you know, we'll see you when you die. Salvation, when it becomes ours, it has a real impact on our lives right now. And that's what I want you to hear. And you've heard me talk about this before. You know, Jesus, in his own words, in John 10, 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The King James Version says, calls it life abundantly. New Living Translation calls it a rich and satisfying life. The message paraphrase says, Jesus came that they can have more and better life than they ever dreamed of. You see, this truth, this salvation, it makes a difference in our lives right now. And we know one day when Jesus returns, everything will be made perfect and complete. Everything will be made new. But even right now in this fallen world that we're stuck in, we can experience this new life in Christ. We can experience his victory. That's what kingdom living is all about. And you know, I know this is true because, well, the Bible says it. That's the most important thing. But I've also seen it. I've seen it taking place in the lives of people around me. I've seen criminals become God-fearing Christians. I've seen people who are just bound in sin and addiction, be forgiven and find relief. I've seen, you know, hardened hearts become tender. I've seen relationships that you thought were broken forever healed. I've seen old wounds forgiven. I've seen the lost become found and the spiritually dead come to life. And it's all because of Jesus. That's what he does. In fact, even if you look at the front of your bulletins, you know, you probably look at it every week, but you never notice it. But on the very front page are those words. The community of Northgate Baptist exists to bring all people into a reconciled relationship with God, themselves, and others. And you know, that's our church's way of saying, even now, God is beginning to restore all the things in his creation that have been broken by sin. Because God is not just the creator of all things. He's not just the sustainer of all things. He's also the redeemer, the reconciler, the savior of all things. And he's setting right all that has gone wrong. And he has done that through the cross and through Christ. And I've told you before, as a pastor, I always try to be an encourager. I don't want to be one of those I don't know, other pastors who I guess is not an encourager, but um, you know, I, I never want to force people into doing something they're not ready for. I don't want to be the guy that just guilts people into making decisions one way or another. I don't want people to feel beat up, you know, with the Bible, but with the way that they're living their, their lives. But you know what? What I do want to do as a pastor is I want people to experience God's very best in their life. And I'm convinced that God's best for our lives, for my life, for your life, and all of our lives is found in Jesus Christ and in knowing him as our Lord and Savior. So I encourage people to make that choice. But you still need to actually make it. And you know, as you sit in church this morning, or any other morning, you may look like everyone else, you may talk like everyone else, you may have attended this church or another church for years, but none of that really matters if you've not believed. If you've not taken that step in your heart to say, Jesus, I trust you. 
And I can't do that for you. The church can't do it for you. You can't depend on someone else to do that for you. Only you can choose to accept the love and grace and forgiveness that Jesus Christ has to offer you. Now, if you're here this morning and you've been putting that choice off, don't do it any longer. Don't wait for a better time. Don't wait for life to slow down or when the grandkids are grown or whatever or anything else. Make that choice to put your faith in him. All you need to do is confess that you know you're a sinner. Repent, that means change the way that you're living. Stop living for yourself and say, God, I'm gonna start living for you. And believe that Jesus is God and that he died for your sins. He's taken the penalty to offer you life. And then just ask Jesus to forgive your sins and come into your life as your Lord and your Savior. And he'll do that. He will forgive you. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise of God, and that is a choice that you can make even today. And if you made that choice, I would invite you to join us as we come to the Lord's table again this morning.